Good morning. And I've just been reminded to say that children can leave for Children's Church. Thank you, Chris, for reminding me. I would have forgot. All right, the kids are going to go out to Children's Church, and they'll be back at the end of the service. Right. So summer's here. Yeah. Um, even though there might be another sermon or two before we officially jump back into our um, Summer in the Psalms series, Brandon gave me the option this morning of preaching on any topic or picking up where we left off in the Psalms. So that's what I decided on. We'll be looking this morning at Psalm 42. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Psalm 42. I'll give you a second to get there, and then I'm going to read that passage, that whole chapter. It's only 11 verses. Psalm 42. As a deer pants, I'm sorry, I forgot the first part, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul For you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. I pray to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, or I shall again praise him. My salvation, my God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. You are mighty God, creator of all things, sustainer of all things. You are our rock, our God, our salvation. We are so grateful. Thank you for the privilege of being here today. Fellow Christians, to praise you and thank you, to hear from you as you speak to our hearts in times of trouble. 
We're so grateful that we can trust you with every aspect of our lives. We want to lift up to you all of our youth and the adults that are at camp this week. Lord, would you watch over them, care for them. I pray for the youth to have soft hearts, Lord, to hear your word, to hear the gospel, and respond in repentance and faith if they do not already know you. For those who do, Lord, and their lives are in turmoil, Father, that they would be restored in their joy, your salvation. We're so grateful for you, for your grace and your kindness, your mercy, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I would venture to say that many of you, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, have probably had those weeks where you feel like the pastor is preaching right to you, uh, as if someone told him what was going on in your life and what you needed to hear. Uh, I think we've all probably experienced that. Um, and the fact is that, that God knows what each one of us needs to hear. The Lord knows on any given Sunday what we need. And sometimes several people in the congregation will be affected by different portions of the same sermon. God can do that. He can speak through his word and convict our hearts where we need that. And many times we all need to hear the same thing for the same reasons. And I don't know what God has planned in each heart represented here today, but we want to continue as we go forward to ask him to help us to accomplish his will in our hearts today. That's our thought process and what we want today. As I began studying and preparing for this sermon, it was evident right away that this psalm was directed right at me. Um, the, the emotions. Sentiments and thoughts, right or wrong, have been present in my life on many occasions. And as I considered the assembly of God's people here this morning, I realized that every one of you sitting here today would probably feel like this is directed right at you as well. If not right now in your life, but something from the past, or maybe with a family member, Maybe it's something that's going to be taking place in your life in the future. We all need this. But even if it's a family member, perhaps, that you'll be thinking about this morning, that can have a profound effect and impact on your life as well. I've been pretty vague so far regarding something in your life and what it is. I want to say that whatever that something is isn't really the point that I want to draw out of the text today. What we need to see today is what that something causes or brings about in our lives and how it relates to our outlook on life. And I can clear this up or focus this in a little bit further by pointing out that 
the, the something I'm talking about is not pleasant. It's not fun. And that's not descriptive enough, though. In fact, it's downright exhausting to think about. Painful to experience with dreadful possibilities. And you can't really do anything about it. But again, what it is isn't the point. That's not to minimize what it is or to deny the effects on your life. But what we want to do today is exactly what the author of Psalm 42 does. In fact, we don't have a whole lot of detail here. There are differing opinions among biblical scholars about who the author of this particular psalm is. Some think it's David or an unknown priest, and still others think it was the sons of Korah. The text does begin by saying to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Of the sons of Korah could be saying that it was written by them. It could also be saying it was performed by them. Either way, it was written to the choir master or worship leader, to use a modern term. The sons of Korah are the descendants of the Korah written about in number 16, who was part of a rebellion against God with others. God caused the earth to open up and swallow up 250 rebels, and then more people rebelled, and God sent a plague, and so on. The sons of Korah, however, were not killed, and his descendants would be the ones who wrote some of the Psalms in our Bibles. It seems to me that it would fit more to see this psalm as being written by someone else, given to the choir master to be performed by the sons of Korah, because it seems to be describing the experience of someone else. But either way, the main point is not who wrote this. We can be satisfied knowing that God wrote it through whichever human author he used, and it's for our benefit. Now, we know that the book of Psalms is a collection of songs or poems, and they have the purposes of expressing praise and worship and adoration, sometimes lament, despair, confusion, and other human emotions as well as expressions of prayer, longing, and hope. We see a range of these in the text today, but we want to come away with the correct thought process when we're done. And the title of the sermon is, Where is God? Because how often is that what we're asking ourselves? How many times are we faced with life circumstances that cause us, even as Christians, to wonder, where is God? That's what the psalmist is asking in his despair. That's where he's at. He's in despair. So I pray that Psalm 42 will be the cry of your heart today, both in its description of the tendency of the human heart to despair, but in the real point of the passage, which is to call you. A call to turn your eyes and your mind and your heart back to God and find your solace in Him. So the author describes this psalm as a mascal, which is probably a musical term. It's thought to refer to a contemplation or an instruction in musical form. And we need to notice right away that the writer is not where he wants to be. 
if you look at the text, he's not in Jerusalem where the people gather and assemble in the house of God. He says at the end of verse 6, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. He's describing a mountain in, in a range of mountains on the northern boundary of Israel, with the highest peak being Mount Hermon at over 9,000 feet. And though it's shorter, it seems to be a lot like Mount Shasta, in the sense that it has snow on it almost year-round. It can be seen from quite a distance. You drive up I-5 from Redding, or even south of Redding at Red Bluff, you can see it. It's also seen by many as a spiritual place, and some people think it's the high mountain that Jesus went up on when he was transfigured. This is also the area near the headwaters of the Jordan River with lots of runoff and springs of water coming from under the mountains. And think of the headwaters of the Sacramento River that we have right here as they come out from under the mountain. It's the same kind of thing. It seems nothing is really known about Mount Mazar, but it would all be in the same area, or which is, would be more than 100 miles away from where he wants to be in Jerusalem. Why is he kept away? Why can't he go where he wants to go? We don't know the, the circumstances, but we know he has adversaries all around him, and they are a source of great distress for him. Perhaps this is related to Psalm 44, where the psalmist describes God having uh, rejected his people, and he, he doesn't know why. He says in Psalm 44, You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Is this what the author is describing in our text today? It could be, but it, it just doesn't say whatever it is. It's devastating to him. The point is the effects of the events in life and how they're res responding and, and will respond. How do we respond to the events in life? We have both expressions, both things expressed here. How the heart or soul has been responding and how the author is spurring his soul to respond differently moving forward. And this isn't a, a made-up story. This is a real person, a follower of God, going through real hardship, a person putting pen to paper for the purpose of expressing in a few simple words what his soul is feeling. How does he describe his situation in verses 1 through 2? If you look there in Psalm 42, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is a man whose life is in spiritual drought. He describes not just a deer who's wandering to the water hole every night like he does all the time, to get a little bit to drink. There is no water. It can't be found. 
This is as if the deer has had no water for a while and is wandering around searching for it desperately. He's not panting because he ran a mile, but because he needs water or he'll die. His life depends upon water. Not just any water. He describes flowing streams. Not a puddle that will be gone when he drinks of it, but a never-ending, always-flowing source. And the psalmist says, that's how my soul feels night and day. He's saying, my fellowship with God has dried up and my soul can't live without him. My soul is so thirsty for communion with God. Why the soul? The Bible sometimes talks about the soul or the heart in this way, and it's talking about the inner man. This is the very depths of a person and what they need. So this passage isn't describing a positive trait of a soul searching for God as much as it's describing the fact that there is a severe spiritual drought here and a lack of communion with God. This isn't a pagan God he desires. It is the only true God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, he says. And then he asks, when? When will this change? When will things get better, he says. When shall I come and appear before God? To appear before God is to be in his presence, to be face-to-face, so to speak, in the place where God dwells. And at that time, it was... In Jerusalem, but the author is not there. He's not where he wants to be. He wants to have close communion with the living God again, and he wants to know he's seen by God. But he cannot. Instead, he describes more pain in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Here it is. This is the big question, is it not? Where is your God? This is the taunt of the adversaries that are around him. They know his circumstances. They know his pain. They know who he says he believes in and follows. Where is your God? They don't actually believe in his God. They're mocking him because the fool says in his heart there is no God. That's who they are. The question comes at him all day long. Come on, tell us. Where's your God? Why is he not helping you? The psalmist is in deep despair. The tears are his sorrow, day and night. In other words, all the time. He has no appetite and he is left to ponder the mocking question ringing in his ears. Where is your God? And you and I should be thinking at this point about our own lives as Christians. Whatever the reason, are you in a spiritual drought right now? Do you find that you often feel that God is far off, that God doesn't answer your prayers? We most likely don't have anyone mocking us with the question, but do we really need someone else to ask us that? Let's be honest, our own thoughts sometimes ask the same mocking question, don't they? Where is your God? 
Why is this happening to me or to my loved one? When will it end? Why is God not answering my prayers? In all these verses, we see this inner struggle with the soul. What's being described of the soul is my soul pants for God like a deer looking for water that is not there in verse 1. My soul thirsts for the living God, verse 2. I pour out my soul, verse 4. My soul is cast down, verse 5. My soul is in turmoil within me, verse 5. My soul is cast down, verse 6. My soul is cast down, verse 11. My soul is in turmoil, verse 11. The word for cast down means bowed low or in despair. He has described his soul being in this condition because of his circumstances. He's being honest. It's just a fact that his soul is cast down and in turmoil over his life. So then he does what a lot of us do when we're in despair. We try to remember the good times. We remember what we used to have or or how we want things to be again. This guy is no different. But what he remembers is perhaps different than what we tend to focus on. What he remembers is in line with what his soul has been panting over in thirst. Look at verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. What are they? How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. As he pours out his soul to God, he remembers good things. He longs for the assembly of God's people. He used to lead them to the place of worship. They shouted in gratitude to God and sang songs of praise as they were obedient to God and gathering for his festivals. He's remembering this, and this memory is the spark for doing what's necessary in times of spiritual drought for Christians. What is it? What must we do? We must renew our minds. Think straight. Not like the world asking where God is, but knowing where he is and who he is and thinking rightly about him. This is something we have to work on. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? It's also something that God must do for us. And he promises to guard our hearts and our minds, doesn't he? In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So how do we see the author of our text doing this? First, he remembers God and the assembly of believers praising him. And as he meditates on the truth about God, he finds that he's been wrong. He's been wrong to linger in a place of despair. The author is almost arguing with himself. 
And he's rebuking himself for such wrong thinking. He has to snap himself out of it. That's what you and I need to do sometimes. Look at verse 5. This is him speaking to his own soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Because his soul is cast down, he remembers God. Stop it, he says to himself. What am I doing? I know who God is and what he's done. I don't need to despair because my hope is not in my life going a certain way or things being a certain way. My hope is in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? Really, Christian. If your sins are forgiven, you're in Christ. What business have we to be in despair? There may be reasons for concern and despair that try to creep in into our lives, but Christians have every reason not to stay in that place. When you detect it, you want to get rid of it. Remember your God. We'll come back to this. But we have to see that he goes on in the second stanza of this psalm to describe more of what he's been feeling. He's been describing drought conditions, and now, moving forward, he's describing a situation as, as feeling like drowning. Like my brother and his friends used to take turns dunking me in the pool over and over again, sometimes so fast I couldn't catch a breath in between. Panic sets in. I know they weren't trying to drown me, but what was wrong with them? Don't tell my mom I said that story because she'll get mad at my brother. And he'll say, I'm a tattletale. Um, but that's what he's describing. Feeling of drowning. The author says in verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And deep calls to deep is an interesting and, and hard saying, really. It is clearly connected to the roar or the sound of waterfalls. Some point out this is in line with the location where the author is, where he's described that he's at, with so much water around and, and, and waterfalls and the canyons and that kind of thing, and the sounds they make that spurred him on to write it in this way. I didn't really find a, a satisfactory explanation for the meaning of this term, deep calls to deep. One commentator said, the psalmist knew, I'm in deep trouble on the outside and I'm in deep trouble on the inside. These two depths seem to collide in him, sending him deeper still 
It's a powerful and poetic description of despair. F.B. Meyer says, The deep of divine redemption calls to the deep of human need. The deep of Christ's wealth calls to the deep of the saint's poverty. And the deep of the Holy Spirit's intercession calls to the deep of the church's prayer. These are their attempts at explaining this. It seems to me that the main point here is still the depths of despair. But in another word picture, as with the next one, which is more understandable in terms of the ocean with its waves and breakers, the idea here being that trouble just keeps coming like the unstoppable, powerful waves of the ocean, one after another after another, relentlessly. They have overtaken him for sure, and he has felt it as such. Isn't that how life feels sometimes? Over and over and over. One thing after another, we like to say. But we can't skip over the fact here that the writer, in comparing the negative events of his life to drowning in the ocean waves that just keep coming, as attributed to the trouble, he's attributing this trouble to God. He said, your waterfalls, all your breakers and waves, referring to God, they're his. Who commands the sea and the waves and sets the boundaries? God does. They are his. They belong to him. He brings them ashore. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Don't believe God would do this? Ask Jonah. Ask Jonah who who caused the wind and the waves to rage though he'd be thrown overboard by others and who brought the great fish to swallow him up. This isn't this isn't fantasy. This is biblical truth. Describing God. Whatever is happening in your life is not a random event or an accident. God is in control. They are His waves and breakers of trouble. Sure, sometimes they're a result of another person's sin or your own sin, but couldn't God stop anything and everything from happening at any time? Absolutely. But he doesn't always. Why? Romans 8.28 gives us an answer. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do we believe that or not as Christians? These are the things we need to remind our soul of when faced with the hardships of life. It may not be for your good that your sickness is taken away. It may not be for your good that you are pain-free. It may not be for your good that you keep that job or, or that, that that broken relationship is restored. We can't imagine 
God's plan would include something painful to us, can we? Well, we would be wrong. We mistakenly think that the way he works is by giving us what we want and doing what we want the way we want it and when we want it. God is sovereign over our lives. And he alone does what is necessary to accomplish his will. The hard part is we don't know exactly what he's doing because we can't see the big picture. We can only see how it affects us in the negative. Though God is working and we don't like it if it isn't pain-free, he's still doing it because he loves us. The author didn't argue against God for this point. He, he pointed it out and then reminded himself of another truth about what God was doing. He acknowledged his waves and his breakers. Yes, there is trouble and hardship in life. But look at verse 8. He reminds himself, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Here he's continuing his remembrance and recognition of what God is doing positively. He, he commands his steadfast love. What trouble? God's faithful love for me is steadfast immovable and sure and I know it during the day at night the author says he sings a prayer to God and this prayer is grounded in two truth statements and beliefs he has about God God is the God of his life and God is his rock he can believe this and, and still have the feelings he's having about what's happening in his life. But what's going to win out? Is it the despair? He goes on, and, and it's the same old taunt with an added description, this mockery received, he receives from his adversary, saying, where is your God? That this, this mockery is so painful because of his circumstances. He describes it has an injury in his bones that, that threatened to take his life. Verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? He's describing the same tendency to despair because the events in his life are actually painful. He's not pretending. There is something that is more powerful and that is the Lord God himself and his steadfast love. And he goes into his repeated chorus and rebuke of his own soul for not thinking rightly in the face of calamity. That rebuke to the soul is in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You remember what he remembered earlier? 
that he led the procession of the people to the house of God in praise and shouting. Here he's saying, why are you cast down, soul? Why are you in such turmoil within me? Do you not remember your God? Hope in him, because I shall again praise him. He will be restored to a place of praising God and a place of satisfied thirst. He believes that. He's telling himself that. He knows it's the truth. But he has to remind himself of it, doesn't he? We need to remind ourselves. Why is this so difficult? Examine your own life for a moment. You're a Christian. You don't need to be kept from coming to church or have people mocking you to be in a place of spiritual drought or to feel like the waves of life's trouble are crashing all around you, threatening to drown you. We don't need to be kept away from church to have this happen. You can find that you are wondering where God is because you're suffering under other pressures of life or the pain of loss or maybe because of sin. Either way, this is a real thing that Christians face. Let's be honest about that. We often find ourselves there because we've forgotten the truth about God. Even if temporarily we have forgotten We need to rebuke our own soul and remember God. He said, as we should, God is my rock, my hope, and my salvation. And he said that in two different places in this passage. And at the same time, he's asked himself where God was. The thing that won out was his knowledge about God, even though his circumstances didn't change. Okay, We need to notice that. His circumstances didn't change. His thinking had to. And I hope you notice this theme in Scripture, all throughout Scripture. God often does not change our difficult circumstances because life is not about being free from pain and suffering. We want it to be. That's not what life is about. Life for the Christian is about how we suffer for Christ. We need to stop looking for the way out and look for the way through. God promises to be with us through, not get us out. Psalm 23, 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That verse is essentially what we're talking about here. This is the answer to the question, where is God? He's right here with you, Christian. If if you feel like God is far off, it's not because of him. It's because of you. You're letting your circumstances keep you in bondage to wrong thinking. Remember your God and be free. Remember your God and hope in him alone. 
And Larry read from 1 Peter earlier, and it is the perfect encouragement and call to the Christian to be sober-minded, to think clearly because God has caused you to be born again to a living hope through Christ. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. Don't let your circumstances tell you something else. You're being guarded, Christian, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're being tested. This is why the author of Psalm 42 can say, and why we Christians can say, God is my rock. In the light of circumstances in life, God is my rock. It's a reference to the strength and steadfastness and assurance and protection of God through the valley of the shadow of death. God is my hope, he says. It's a reference to the fact that we do not need a change of earthly circumstances to be free from despair. God is my salvation, and this is what all hope hinges on. There is no way to be free of the effects of worries and pressures and fears and sorrows of this life without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without him, you are lost. And you have great reason to fear and despair and feel like God is far off. But if you're a Christian, what can man do to you? What can the pain of life do to you? Can anything of true value be taken away from you? Even if your very life is taken? No. Because in Christ, you can have everything in this life taken away. And you've lost nothing. Why? Because as Paul said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's Christian thinking. Life is not about you. It's about Christ and knowing him. Oh, we've made it about a lot of other things, haven't we? Come back to the truth and renew your minds in Christ Jesus. Pray, ask God to take away the trial. We should. You should pray for that. If he does, then praise him for his kindness and his mercy in this life. If he doesn't, then praise him for his kindness and his mercy in the life to come. Either way, God 
is kind, gracious, and merciful for saving a sinner like you and me. He's right there in your heart, Christian. He never left, never abandoned you, never forsook you. He's always loving you. Why do you go on with a cast-down soul? Why do you go about mourning because of your enemies or, and because of the earthly suffering when God is your rock, your hope, and your salvation? Maybe you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian. You've never given your life to Christ and received salvation through repentance and faith. You've been hearing that Christians are going through the same things you are. Maybe you thought becoming a Christian meant your life would be free from trouble. Well, that's not true. We all experience the hardships of life, don't we? Everyone. But for you, God isn't your rock. He isn't your hope. He isn't your salvation. You are. You have been. Or at least trying to be. You cannot benefit from the promises of God for eternal life because you're still in your sin and going through life distant from God because of it. While the Christian sitting here today is hearing and being reminded of their salvation through Christ as a balm for their soul, you don't have that. How can you get something from this passage? I'll tell you. God is calling you today through his word. You're in desperate need of your sins to be forgiven. You're in lifelong bondage to the fear of death because you know you have sinned and that sin has not been dealt with. How can you've tried to, to be a good person and, and live a good life and are hoping that that will be enough, but it will not. Even one of your sins is enough to condemn you to hell forever, and you can't erase it. Doing good doesn't change the fact that you violated God's law. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever looked at another person with lust? Have you used God's name in vain and blasphemed him? Have you ever... Have you ever loved the Lord your God with all your soul and your heart and your mind and your strength? Have you? You're guilty before God like the rest of us. If you died today and stood before God being guilty like that, would God give you heaven or hell? This is the question we have to ask. The Bible says it would be hell. It's what we all deserve because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And that's what we all have earned, and no amount of doing good can change that. In fact, God just shuts down that thought by telling us that no one does good, not even one. So if you're counting yourself in that category of doing good, you're not. None of us are. There is no hope apart from God. But there is good news today. And that's what the word gospel means. Good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is 
God himself, and he's provided a way. A way for you out of having to pay for your own sin for an eternity in hell. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a sinless life in order to keep God's law. Then he went to the cross and suffered on your behalf as your substitute. God requires perfect righteousness for anyone to enter into eternal life, and you can't do it. In fact, to even try to offer God your own works as payment for your sin is arrogant. It's an offense against God and a complete rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only righteous one. And he offers to give you his righteousness. Salvation is not earned by you. It's a gift from God. Perhaps you've been told or taught that you have to be a good person to be saved and God will accept you. It's a lie. Shouldn't we know what God actually says about how to be saved? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And that one verse should be clear enough to teach us we cannot do anything to save ourselves. Cast that old lie away. Stop trusting in yourself to be right with God. Trust in Him. You are not and cannot become a Christian because you came to this church or because you go to any other church. You're not a Christian because you're an American citizen. You're not a Christian because you were born into a family with other Christians in it. You're not a Christian because you declare yourself a Christian. You become a Christian when you humble yourself to agree with God that you are a sinner. And when you repent and turn from your sin and turn to God and believe in what Jesus Christ did to save you, that's how you become a Christian. He came and lived a sinless life in your place. He suffered and died on the cross, taking your shame and the punishment for your sin, enduring the wrath of God for you. He was buried and rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. He took your unrighteousness upon himself, and he offers to give you his righteousness if you'll repent and trust in him alone for salvation. You have to humble yourself. And that's hard. My sin's not that bad. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But what does God say? All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. It is the gospel, and God is calling you today. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear the good news of Jesus Christ today. You cry out to God in prayer right where you are, and you ask him to save you according to his promises. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're thinking there's another way, you've been lied to. You're believing a lie. 
Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This isn't a promise of no more trouble in life. But when you are in Christ, and you know where your eternity is, as we saw in 1 Peter, it's kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded. When you know that, the fear of death is gone. Trouble will come, but you will be able to say that God is your rock. He is your salvation. He is your hope. Trust the Lord today. Before you leave today, if you've trusted the Lord or if you want to know more, please come see me after church. I would love to talk with you more. And Christian, rebuke your own soul if need be. Remind yourself who God is. Whatever your struggle is, God has not left you. He's right there. Let's trust in him today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. I thank you, Father, that as Christians, we can count on every single promise you have made us. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to believe our feelings, but to trust your word. Lord, when trouble comes, and it will, perhaps it's already here in many people's lives today. Lord, help us to remind ourselves who you are. We do not need to go about with our souls cast down. Convict us, Lord, of times when we like to wallow in our suffering. Help us to get out of that. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us through the hardships of life and that no matter what happens as Christians, Lord, our hope is in you. Help us today like the psalmist did when we realize the despair and the dryness and the overwhelming nature of life sometimes, that we will come to you, trusting in you, being reminded of who you are, and looking to the future with our eyes fixed on Christ. Pray for the heart here this morning, Lord, that is, has not known you, or that you would be crushing them now under the weight of their own sin and the knowledge of it. But Lord, that you would be bringing gladness to their heart in the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through his suffering and death and resurrection, we can have eternal life with you through repentance and faith. I pray, Lord, that those today who are lost would come to know you in saving faith. We have so much to rejoice in. 
all because of you. You are worthy of all praise as we sing, Lord. May we contemplate your word today, contemplate the words of the songs, draw our hearts to you in gladness, shouts of praise. You are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.